So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get up out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would honor your very words that were read, that even as we heard them, that they would crack open hardened hearts, that the truths we heard would penetrate deeply within us and already begin working change. Lord, we are naturally deaf people when it comes to hearing your words, and so we ask that you would do the supernatural and open up our ears We're also naturally hardened people and our hearts don't like to receive truth. And so we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your truth. We want to hear from you. So God, I pray that my words now would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a better way to start the new year than to kind of read and preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's um, it's one of those uplifting, inspirational texts that you know you always kind of dream about as a as a preacher, inspire you to make New Year's resolutions, be a better person. Um, Actually, growing up, I heard this text preached on quite a bit in the church that I was at. Um, or the revivals that I was uh, dragged to. And uh, usually the pastor would say something like this, you know, the, uh, the people of today do things that would make the people of Sodom and Gomorrah blush. And then he would point out the evils, evils such as listening to ACDC, or evils such as listening to Striper, heavy, heavy metal Christian rock. And I can remember one time even... The, the person held up, a, the preacher held up a poster of Striper and ripped it in front of me. And somehow I was looking at that and I was thinking, you know, after I read what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, I really don't think they would blush at me listening to ACDC. Um, I actually always walked away thinking, man, in light of this story, I live a pretty good life. I, I, I live nothing like these people that God destroyed. 
But here we are in Genesis 18 and 19. It's, it's where we are as we're walking through this series in Genesis. And so what, what do we do with a text like this? Um, a story about fire, destruction, um, an attempted gang rape. I mean, it's a, it's a horrific text that actually reveals a lot about us. It says a lot about our sins. It says a lot about who we are. And I think it also says a lot about who our church should be for this coming year. Um, just before Christmas, we, we read and looked at the first half of Genesis 18, in which three visitors came to Abraham. And they told him, uh, Sarah, your wife is going to have a child. And Sarah is listening, and she laughs to herself. The Lord calls her out on it and says, Sarah, why did you laugh? For some reason, she says, I didn't laugh. So the Lord calls her out on it again. Yes, you did. End of discussion. And after that, the Lord and his uh, two messengers, the two angels with him, they, they left. And that's where this story picks up. They get up and they start heading to the city of Sodom. And, and Abraham is the good host. And so he gets up and he walks with them for part of their journey. But as they are walking, the Lord tells Abraham what he's about to do, that he's about to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and judge them. And he thought he should tell Abraham this because after all he has promised Abraham that Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations. So if you're about to wipe out one of the nations, Abraham should probably be in on this. And then something curious happens in verse 22. Chapter 18, it says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh, the two men, they go on to uh, Sodom, and you get the picture of almost Abraham blocking the Lord's path, kind of moving and standing before the Lord, saying, No, 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 no. Not yet. And then he gets really, really bold. I mean, he asks God a pointed question. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do that, Lord. And he repeats that. Far be it from you twice. He is, he is in a sense, in the Lord's face being very bold and direct. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Parents, how would you treat your child if your child talked to you that way? I, I would send my child to the room if I didn't spank them first. But God doesn't do this. No, the Lord listens to Abraham, agrees with Abraham. He's actually pleased with Abraham's request. I think it's actually uh, somewhat humorous that um, Abraham, after the Lord answers his first request, um, you see how he, answer, you, he asked the Lord the second time. Um, you know, first time he doesn't even call the Lord Lord. He just kind of jumps right in and says, how can you do this? Far be it from you to do this. And I think he's actually amazed he's not dead and that the Lord didn't just say, hey, little Abraham, off the planet for talking to me like that. He's, he's kind of amazed. And so his second request is this, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. You know, he finally he gets this, this reverent tone. But he keeps this conversation with the Lord and he keeps interceding on Sodom's behalf. 
Abraham does not delight in knowing that the wicked are about to be slaughtered. Notice that he's not praying for his nephew. He doesn't say, hey God, my nephew Lot, he lives there. Save Lot. He doesn't. He's praying for the entire city. Don't wipe out the city. He cares about all the people in the city. Certainly he cares about Lot, but he cares about all of them. He pleads that God would not destroy them until finally he, he, he gets God to, to say he won't destroy Sodom if there's just ten righteous people. Only ten. Do you, do you pray for your community with such boldness? As Abraham's children, we should pray for our city and our community like this. We then come to chapter 19, which is one of the most horrific chapters in all the Bible. And uh, here there's the description of Sodom's sin, and it just kind of makes you cringe as, as you're reading this. I don't know about you, but I've never seen anything like this in real life. Um, and so there's a temptation for when I read this text to think, okay, this doesn't apply for me. It, probably doesn't apply to anybody living in Birmingham, Alabama. Maybe some people who live in Las Vegas, maybe some people on Bourbon Street, you know, maybe some other really horrible places in the U.S. where people just go all out and sin, but but not here in Birmingham, Alabama, not here at this church. I don't think that my life in any way resembles these people. I mean, we've got an angry mob of both old and young men, all the men in this entire city trying to beat down Lot's door in order to gang-rape his two guests. The scene here is just gruesome. It's, you cannot get a more wicked, a more heinous scene than this. This is where our, our term sodomy comes from. It's a picture of evil that's almost become iconic. Christians and non-Christians alike all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. They know about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's it's obvious. It's homosexual sin here. That's why God rained down fire upon the city. But hear these words from Ezekiel 16 um, about Sodom. And this is um, Ezekiel writing to Israel. And he's comparing them and their sins to the sins of Sodom. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them. Let me me read that again. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her sisters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So we read this and we ask, so what is the great sin of Sodom? It's pride. It's neglect of the poor. It's living a comfortable life. 
I, I tell you, no matter how many times I read that, it still hits home to me. It, it still hits home. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're destroyed because they thought they were something. They thought that they were something. I mean, that they were the best nation. They were the best city on earth. Obviously, God or the gods had blessed them because look at their life. They were wealthy. They were comfortable. They had things easy. So obviously, they had God's favor. But no, God sees them as wicked. Look how the Lord Jesus himself describes this judgment of Sodom in Luke 17. In Luke 17, 28, he says this. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so when Jesus is describing the, the, this day of judgment of Sodom, when he's describing their, what's going on there, he doesn't describe sexual sins. He doesn't describe homosexual gang rape, and that's why God rained fire down on them. He describes what you would see as an ordinary life. I mean, look at the activities he describes. He doesn't say they were gambling and they were drinking and they were cursing and they were listening to rock music, you know, and they were, they were doing all these horrible things. He doesn't list that. He says they were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. And then the Lord rained fire down on them and wiped them off this earth. And what Jesus is warning us here is that what we would consider an ordinary life, just an ordinary life, can be a wicked and evil life in his eyes. That our ordinary life could be lived out in total rebellion against him. That we can get up and we can, we can wake up in our homes and we can eat our breakfast and we can drive to work or we can you know, go to Walmart, go shopping. We can do all those things and it can be absolutely evil in the Lord's eyes. Because we do it out of pride, we do it in neglect of the poor. We do not do those things in glory for Him. Ezekiel says that the people of Sodom were haughty. I love that word, haughty. Full of pride. Now, proud people, they think they have a good life because they've earned it. That's how you know if a person's proud. I've got a good life. I am who I am because I have made myself this way. I've worked hard for it. I deserve it. Proud people believe they deserve the car that they drive. They have worked hard for the home that they have. They deserve the job that they have. They, they don't think of the grace of God, that God has actually given them those things. They think that they have achieved those things. And so the reality is, when I look at my life, I mean, it's obvious I struggle with pride. I, I don't just think at times that I have earned those things. I actually think I deserve better 
than those things. How many of you, when you look at your life, think, I actually deserve a better job, a better promotion. I deserve a better car. I deserve a better lazy boy chair. I deserve better respect than I'm getting. I I deserve better honor from the people around me. We, We not only think what we have, we've worked hard and we deserve it. We think we actually deserve more. That's being haughty. That's being proud. The people of Sodom thought the same thing. Ezekiel says, in addition to this, they did not aid the poor. You know, they were living in this life of ease because they didn't give their money away. So they would go shopping, they would go to work, they would you know, build their homes, they'd do whatever without so much as thinking about the poor. They were doing unto themselves, I heard Dr. Mark Ginolette say this in a message one time, they were doing unto themselves what they should be doing unto others. Many commentators point out that the outcry that the Lord hears is actually the cry of the oppressed and the cry of the poor coming from Sodom. Now, I don't know if this hits home for you, but this hits home for me. And I will confess that I don't like this story anymore now since I've studied it. It used to just kind of be a fun, fantastic little story, but now I really don't like it. I liked it when I could read it and I could judge others. I liked it when there was a us and a them. I don't like it when it's all about us. When I can't judge Sodom, I can only relate and identify with Sodom. It's uncomfortable for me. I think I need to mention before we we move on in this text, just one, one additional thing about our calling to help the poor. In this story, I want you to notice that there are no righteous poor. There are no righteous poor. Um, This is a hard, it is a sobering truth here, but God condemns the people of Sodom for not taking care of the poor. Then God destroys the poor. Do you see that there? It says, you did not take care of the poor, and the judgment is I'm destroying you and the poor. Because the poor aren't righteous either. The rich and the poor alike are unrighteous. They're all wicked before me. And the reason I feel like I need to point this out is because I know a number of Christians who have this grand illusion about helping the poor. You know, they want to get out there and do good for the poor, and they're picturing, you know, maybe going up to somebody on the street, buying them a meal, and this the person they help is so nice, is so kind and so grateful and thanks them, you know, a hundred times for, thank you so much for buying me this meal. I've been praying all day that the Lord will bring somebody like you into my life to buy this for me and you've changed my life and, and everything's just so wonderful and we kind of expect that. But that is not always the case. And I don't know about you, but for me that's rarely the case 
Sometimes ministering to the poor is hard because they're unrighteous. Sometimes the poor are in a horrible situation because their own sin has placed them there and they're not repentant of it. Sometimes they don't want your help. They don't want to repent. They're not going to be kind. They will never be grateful. Uh, At our office downtown, or I guess I should say once was our office downtown since we've uh, given that up and are moving, uh, there's, a, there's a homeless man that comes by fairly often that we try to help. And uh, he is the rudest man that you could come across. Um, and he always, you know, comes knocking on the door. Hello, my Christian brothers. Open the door for me. And we'll open the door for him. And then he's just rude. What do you got? I, I fed him six hot dogs just a few days ago, and he's still not satisfied. He, he gripes and he complains. He's, he's rude. He's demeaning to you. And, and, and all the while you're like, what what I do to deserve this? Uh, last time I, I bought a meal for somebody downtown, there was a lady. She wanted some money. I said, I don't give you, I want, I'm not going to give you money, but there's a Chick-fil-A right there. Can I buy you some food? And she complained and said, no, I don't want food. I want money because I'm hungry. I'm like, well, I can buy you. Fi- finally, she goes, okay, you can get me something. Make it a combo number six, Diet Coke to drink. I said, oh, okay. And so I went in there and I, 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 I bought her this and I brought it back out. And she didn't thank me. She only complained that I brought her the wrong sauce. I mean, you just kind of want to lash out. I mean, come on, you're supposed to at least be grateful. Helping the poor isn't always like that. Sometimes the poor are unrighteous. But you know what? It is our calling as a church to give to the unrighteous poor. Because it reminds us of the gospel. Do you think you deserved your salvation? Do you think when God's grace was being poured on you, you were kind to Him? Open Him up, loving arms? We were in rebellion against God. We were his enemies, and yet he overcame us with his love. And that is what we do when we share the gospel and we share our lives and we share our money with the unrighteous poor. We are showing them the gospel and we are reminding ourselves of the gospel. And if it so bothers you to, to help somebody who's just going to squander your money, just give it away or you know, just be ungrateful, ask yourself, do you really understand the mercy of God? Have you really experienced his mercy in your life? Because if so, it will overflow to them. Let's get back to the story here. The angels go to Sodom and they find Lot sitting at the gate. Um, uh, Don't think of a gate as just like, you know, a gate. It's it's actually a complex. It's a a long corridor where... um, Government officials would be where um, the judges would hang out, the, the city rulers or leaders would be there, and that's where they find Lot, because Lot is now a respectable citizen uh, of Sodom. He's, he's even probably someone a leader in the community, um, which is you know, far cry from what he was when we saw him in Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, it says that he went, you know, in the Jordan Valley, which was well watered, and there happened to be the city Sodom there, and he pitched his tent just on the outskirts of Sodom. 
He didn't actually go into the city. He was just on the outskirts. But now he's no longer a sojourner. He is in the city. He's a respected citizen, somewhat a leader in the community. Because he knows the community that he lives in, he knows what might happen to these two strangers that come. So he begs. He's like, y'all come to my house. It's not safe to be here. Come to my house. Come. He's very persistent. And so they come to his house. He's now living in Sodom. He's got a house, no longer the tent. And he prepares for them a feast. When I study Lot, and I I thought about just doing a whole message on Lot, he's a hard guy to figure out. I mean, he's, he's... I don't know how to describe him. He's somewhat righteous in that he, you know, he looks after strangers. He shows them hospitality. He still believes in the Lord. Yet, he has had no righteous impact whatsoever on his community or his neighbors or even his family. I guess we could just call that person a southern Christian. He should have been salt and light in his community. But instead, as Jesus would say, he has lost his saltiness. And he is worthless. He is not preserving the people that will rot without him. He's become attached to this new life that he enjoys. So much so that he's forced to leave. Uh, Look at chapter 19, verse 15. It says, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. Hey, Lot, I mean, it's the best hellfire damnation sermon you could get. We are about to rain fire down on this city, Lot. And he's like, hmm. He's not convinced. He lingers. So they grab him by the hand. Actually, in Hebrew, you have three times they mention grabbing by the hand. It's like, Lot, come with us. I'm like, no. Oh. Come with us. No. Grab, pull. Drags him out of the city. It's a great picture of our salvation, actually, that none come to the Father, uh, none come to Jesus unless the Father draws or drags them in his mercy. It's a picture of the mercy of God and it's a picture of the stupidity and sinfulness of man. Lot is lingering and he wants to hold on to what is about to burn. And he's not going to embrace what's eternal. I'm sure y'all can't relate to that. One of the things I kept coming to as I was reading this is the realization that all was required was ten righteous people to preserve the city. Just ten righteous people. I mean, Lot didn't even do it. I mean, he had Lot, he had his wife, he had his two daughters, he had their two sons there. I mean, he had six at least that should have been righteous. But he had zero impact. All you needed was ten people giving themselves to the poor, ten people who cared about justice, ten people who realized that everything they had in this life was a gift of God's grace. All they needed was a church of ten to preserve the city. 
They didn't need, you know, some mega church with tons of money to make a difference or an impact. They needed ten righteous to preserve the city. Like Abraham and Lot, we have been told that judgment is coming. We know there is a judgment day. So how are we going to live our lives in light of that? Are we going to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world? Or are we just going to get comfortable? One of my prayers for this church, for this new year, is that we would not just go about life. That we wouldn't just eat, drink, work, do all those things without thinking about the poor, thinking about justice, thinking about doing all those things to the glory of God. That we would see that what He has given us, He's given us those things so we can give them to those who are in need. That He has provided for those who are in need by giving to us. I pray that would happen in 2011. I could end the message here, but I'm not because it would lead you terribly astray. Um, Because you'll think, okay, all right. What you're saying is, you know, 2011, we need to make our New Year's resolutions. We need to become better people, more humble people, more giving people. Got it. It's going to work. And like most of your New Year's resolutions, it's going to fail in about one month or less. Because you will not have the power to do it. And that's not the main point of this story. If you start um, pursuing justice, if you start helping the oppressed, and you do those things only so that God won't smite you, you've completely missed the point of this church. You've missed, who, missed the point of this text and who we are as a church. Because... The main point of this text shows us that none are righteous and none can stand before him and all of us are condemned and it's only by the mercy of God that we are saved. And this text actually points us forward to the one who saves us. I want us to revisit real quickly two texts that we looked at when we were going through Luke. Go to Luke 9 and Luke 12. Luke 9 and Luke 12. Luke 9 verse 51. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him to a village or a city. Somewhat sounds familiar. Um, They rejected him. And verse 54 says, And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They know the story. They know how this is supposed to go. You know, you're, you're sent into a city. They reject you. Yeah, we've seen this before. This is when the fire comes down. You know, Elijah sent fire down. Sodom and Gomorrah, fire came down. Lord, we've grown in our faith. Do you want us to ask that fire comes down? Verse 55 says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Interesting. So they went to another village. Then we come to chapter 12. 
verse 49, in which Jesus says this. He goes, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. To which the disciples are scratching their heads, going, okay, I don't get it. Just a little while ago, we were about to call fire down, cast it down on the earth, and you rebuked us. But now you're saying, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and I wish it already was ablaze. Well, Jesus, we could have made it ablaze, but you rebuked us. What's going on here? We could have had another Sodom and Gomorrah, but you rebuked us and stopped us. And then Jesus clarifies in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This baptism that Jesus is talking about is his death. It is enduring the wrath of God on the cross. And he says, so yes, these cities have sinned. Yes, all these people have sinned. Yes, they deserve judgment. Judgment needs to come. There needs to be another worldwide Sodom and Gomorrah. There needs to be that. And I have come to cast fire on the earth. And I wish it were already a kindled, but I'm going to have to wait because it is coming on me on the cross. I am going to endure the judgment day that should be for everyone. Jesus takes on the curse in order to give us the blessing. He takes on the wrath and the punishment. And so we don't go out and try to become better people and try to do good and all that in order to earn salvation because we will fail because we're unrighteous. But what we do is we look at Jesus who even though we deserve to be punished just like the people of Sodom, but for all of eternity... Jesus took that wrath for us. And because of that, He has changed our hearts and we are so moved by that that when we look at our money, we're like, in light of that love, who cares about money? We can let it go. Jesus, you say that we can can actually serve you and worship you by, by giving to the poor? I'd love to do that. To give to them in light of all you've given me. And our hearts are changed. That's the fuel that we need for this year. To be the people that God has called us to be. Not a New Year's resolution. But our hearts fixed on the gospel. The transforming power of the gospel. Pray with me. Lord, we can never dig down into the depths of your word. We can never reach the end of it. There is always more. And you are always faithful to teach us. I pray now that your spirit, he would come, he would take whatever is not true, whatever is of error, and he would just wipe it away. But Lord, what's of you? God, work it in us. Change us. Transform us. Don't let us put off tomorrow what you are calling for us to do today. May we respond to you now. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.